Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I had absolutely positively no advice from parents ever. Not a word of it. I can remember being 10 years old, sitting on my bike, riding down to thrifty drugstore from my house. And it's like one of those bikes with a banana seat, you know, the seat and that. And thinking, boys have to get jobs and girls don't have to. That should make girls lucky. Why does it make my stomach hurt? I mean, that was the world I grew up in. And I had parents, I grew up in Los Angeles with parents who were literally non-present, meaning I had no instruction. I had, I was the kid whose parents never asked to look for at my report card or if I got my homework and all my friends were really jealous of me. And again, I could see they were jealous and all I could think of is sort of made my stomach hurt. I'm Srini Rao and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Lisa, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It is an utter pleasure to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. You're back here for the second time. And, you know, to me, it always says a whole hell of a lot about one of our guests when we have them back for a second time. You have a new book out, Story or Die, which we will talk about. But as you know, from having heard my conversations, uh, I want to start with something that has nothing to do with the book. And that is, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping the choices that you ended up making throughout your life and your career? That is a great question. And I have never been asked that before. Um, and it's an interesting question. My father was, and you can't see me doing air quotes, was a publisher. And he published nonfiction. He published a magazine called Builder's Handbook and Hospital Handbook. But his background before that, and I do think this influenced me not just in, you know, conscious influence where you know what someone did. And so you're, you know, you're there watching them do it. But he was a journalist way, but a, a journalist, not like an investigative reporter, but he actually, and this is, this is quite an admission. I can't believe I'm going to admit, admit this to you, but he was, he was quite old when I was born. He was born in 1907. A, very long time ago. 
and he had a a, a newspaper column, and I guess it would have been. I mean, I I, don't, I think I found it once online, um, and it was called a Rolling Stone. And he would take up like a trailer, you know, like a now like my dream right now would be to have an Airstream trailer and just be able to, you know, go across the country with it. And he would do exactly that and write about it. And he had a real wry sense of humor. And I think that I have that lens. And then after that, when he met my mother, he was working at a um, a magazine that people, I think, know now if you're into architecture, it was called Architects and Interiors. And um, it was a, a kind of a, a, a major uh, a major publication. And he was their marketing director. So um, I love mid-century stuff. And that has influenced me in a big way. I love my, I know you didn't ask me this question, but my calm place, what soothes me more than anything, especially these days, is scrolling through Instagram and looking at mid-century pictures of cities or or houses or people, you know, at any point. Um, and I think that it just made me really curious and really always out there, not just wondering what's happening, but why are people doing what they're doing? Um, mm. My father also influenced me in that um, he was also a pathological liar and wow. in, a, in a very big way. Um, and therefore, he told great stories. It's really a, a funny way to put it. It's funny. The last time someone asked me a question where I said, no one's ever asked me that question before. And I would say, you're, you're the, only the second person who's ever done it. And that person said, you know, people who love story and the way you love story, they tend to have someone in their life who was a great storyteller. Who was the great storyteller in your early life? And, and that made me, you know, I went, yeah, no one's ever asked me that. And the, the answer is my father. He was really good at it. Now, he had an agenda. He was trying to get people to see him in a certain way. So it made it even more fascinating looking back and kind of breaking down some of the stories he told knowing that they were, you know, completely fictional, um, to see what was his, you know, what was his, his goal. My mother um, was um, a term that, you know, we don't hear that much anymore, but for a very long time was a housewife and sort of did nothing. But my parents divorced when I was 14. And she had a deep interest, even before that, in Jungian psychology. So she immediately got a job at the Young Center here in Los Angeles and, and went back to school and became um, a therapist, a Jungian therapist. And so I think that at that point, by the time she was that, I was already grown and, and out of the house. But um, the interest in, in, in psychology, which I think, I mean, I think an awful lot of the psychology from back then, counting Jung and Freud is so deeply outdated and so deeply misogynist and so deeply rooted in a concept of the way the brain works that has been completely blown up by neuroscience. But that said, it really did get down always into the, I see what you're doing, but what really matters is why. And 
I think that that really gave me, you know, the interest in what goes on beneath the surface, wow. right? Because we all live on the surface. I don't mean we live surface lives, but I mean, you know, all of us, the one thing that we can say about every single one of us, you, me, everybody listening, is that like from the moment we're born till now, we've survived in the surface world. We can see it. We have a basic understanding of it, but it's not what we're trying to figure out. We're always trying to figure out what's going on beneath the surface, not what someone's doing it, but why they're doing it, because that's what really matters. And it's often quite different than what it appears to be when we yeah. look at the surface of what someone's doing. And sort of last thing I'll say is the most fascinating thing about the way that we make sense of things and the way that our brain evolved, especially starting about 100,000 years ago, is that that's what we're wired to look for. We're not wired to look for what's happening. We're wired to look for why someone's doing it because the reason that our brain had that last big growth spurt about 100,000 years ago and what, what we were, when I was taught, what most people until very recently were taught, the reason for that was, was because, you know, that was when we got the ability to, you know, think rationally analytical thought became possible at that point. But what, what social, um, what evolutionary biologists, evolutionary psychologists, neuroscientists now know is that the goal of that wasn't to bring in analytic thinking. It was to, to, to hardwire into our brain the need to belong to a group, the need for social thinking, the need for trying to figure out why people are doing what they're doing. Because at that point, you know, we'd kind of mastered that physical world out there. We were, we were in the, we were, we were neatly placed in the middle of the food chain. And this change leapt us to the front of the food chain. But in order to do that, we had to, you know, learn to do that thing they've been telling us since kindergarten, which is we needed to learn to work well with others. And our need to belong to a group is as hardwired as is our need for food, air, and, and, you know, and water. And what story is about, which of course is always what I circle back to, what the way we make sense of things about and what makes us smart, what the hard science says now is it's not knowing fact. It's not, it's not knowing a whole bunch of objective things about there, being able to dive into the data or, you know, or the facts or explaining things to people. The smartest people are the people who understand how, how, how other people think. In other words, who can read the room. It's the people who have emotional intelligence. That's what gen genuine intelligence is. And that's what we're always looking for, which is, again, that comes back to, I see what you're doing. What I want to know is why. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think the thing that struck me most was that you said that your father was a pathological liar. And I think that, you know, people could have one of two responses to that to say, okay, I want to do and be the exact opposite of whatever I learned from this parent, or I'm going to take what I've learned from them and build a career out of it like you did. Uh, why do you think that you had the response that you did? And why do you think somebody else would have a different response to a father who's a pathological liar? Well, I mean, I, and I think it, it, you know, as with everything, I mean, let, let's imagine that there's sort of a room. I used to say a room with a thousand people, but these days it's like we're out in the field with a thousand people because no one wants to be in a room with a crowd. And each one of those people said, my dad was a pathological liar. Every single person would have a different story. Every single person would have a different consequence that that pathological liar and the type of lies that that person told and what they were trying to achieve by telling those, those lies 
had affected, you know, the effect that it had on them. So on that level, somebody might, you know, someone who was a pathological liar and was lying in order to manipulate them into some sort of, you know, horrific abuse, they would go, yeah, 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 no, I really want to come away from that. Um, Or they might say, sort of as I did, and I had no abuse. He was just, you know, he was, he was a pathological liar, probably borderline personality, you know, or, you know, a, a complete narcissist for sure. Um, but, but with all of that, it comes back to, okay, I want to dive into that because I want to be able to protect myself from that again. And the only way that I'm going to understand and be able to see that is to understand why that person is doing what they're doing. And I think that, I think that with most of us, that's where we would come down to, you know, that's the side we would come down on because if we don't understand what the danger is and why the person's doing what they're doing and what their end goal is, because obviously if someone's a pathological liar, they have an agenda, right? There's something they want to achieve with those lies. And the question is, what is that? And so, I mean, I would think it's, it's, it's hard for me to imagine someone going, I don't want to know. I don't want to know why. I just want to get away from it. And that probably would be someone who had a lot of trauma and it was just too terrifying even to think about. But also it's fascinating because for all of us, the reason that we are the way we are, I mean, we don't do it on purpose. We don't set out to be a pathological liar. We don't set out to often do the things that end up harming other people. The reason we're that way has to do with the way that we were brought up. Because when we're children, I mean, this is the way the brain works. When, when you're a child and you're growing up in whatever family you're growing up in, we are, we're wired to live in a world we don't live in anymore. We're wired to live in a world where what you see is what you get forever. And the family that you grow up in isn't just representative of that particular family and that particular, if they have a religion, religion or that particular culture or that particular, it's that that is the world that's everybody. And so we're wired to learn how the world works by responding to, you know, our parents, what our parents teach us. And for us children, that's life or death, right? I mean, you might have heard there's that Maslow's pyramid of needs. And he says, you know, Abraham Maslow being a, an American psychologist, I think the only thing he's famous for is, is that it could be wrong. <laughs> the pyramid of needs. Everybody's heard of. And, you know, the top of the pyramid is like connection and sense of purpose. And the bottom, he says, the first thing we need is like food, water, shelter. And that's not true because the first thing we need is somebody who cares about us enough to give us those things. So that from the time we're, we're, we're children on, it really is life or death. And we're not to make it sound, you know, completely transactional. But we're really trying to figure out what do I need to do in order to get my needs met? What matters? What meaning am I going to read into the things that happen in this world? You know, I mean, we're, we, we sort of believe that, that they're objective facts. And this was like long before we had even alternative facts, but you know, they're objective facts. And not only are the facts objective, but the meaning read into those facts is also objective, which of course is completely untrue. It is totally subjective so that because that that view of the world, the way that we see the world, the meaning we read into everything is created when we are children. I mean, I just finished, or I guess a while ago, I finished reading a book called uh, um, Louder Than Words, The New Science and How the Mind Makes Meaning. And the meaning that we read into things isn't a priori. It doesn't come from some 
objective, you know, template that we're born with. It comes from one place and one place only. And that's what our past experience have taught us those things mean. And so once, and I won't go into all of the neuroscience as to how it then becomes embedded as permanent in what's known as our cognitive unconscious and how then when we're faced with that same problem or that same situation again, we act in a way where we're not thinking about it. We're just doing it again, because, you know, we have to make, what do they say? 35,000 decisions a day of which we are consciously aware of 70. So most of those decisions are being made for us. And what we take in as kids and what gets, you know, embedded in our cognitive unconscious and in our, this is what I need to do to make me safe is exactly that. It's our brain trying to keep us safe. So when my father was a pathological liar, it's because when he was much younger, whatever, you know, whatever he had gone through as a child taught him that that's what you need to do to stay safe. That's what you need to do to keep yourself from being harmed by other people and getting what you need. And understanding that not only gives you the why things are happening, it's never about the what, it's always about the why, but it also gives you empathy. Doesn't mean it's okay that you're treated that way, but it means you understand that the person isn't doing it like snidely whiplash, you know, on purpose to do something. They're aware they're doing something bad to you. They're doing it on purpose to do something bad to you, that that is their goal is to do something bad to you. It, it almost never is. And, and mm-hmm. that's so important, especially these days when, you know, the world is so divisive is to really understand that people who believe the opposite of what you believe, and now we're coming away from just, you know, parent child, but out into the world, you know, isn't, isn't just, you know, doing it because they're self-centered or because they're egocentric or because they're, let's face it, sometimes we say dumb or to put it in a more neutral way, you know, tragically misinformed. (laughs) It's because, you know, something made them prone to that belief very early in life. And here's the last thing I'll say is, you know how, you know, when you're trying to convince someone of something on some level and they've got some beliefs that is, you know, completely like patently untrue and you think, okay, I'll just, I'll, I'll explain to them. I'll give them the real facts, you know, that are going to contradict what they believe. And then they're going to take it in and think about it and, you know, change their mind. And when you give them that fact that completely yeah. contradicts what they believe, they get really, really angry. <laughs> and instead of being informed, they're inflamed. And here's the truth. The reason they're inflamed isn't any of it. It's not because they're weak or emotional, something I'd love to completely flip the script on because we're so wrong about what we think emotion is. But they get angry because literally that is how our brains are wired. Our brains are wired to send us into a rage when somebody says something that contradicts something that we deeply believe because if we believe it, not only is it part of our self-identity, but it's part of what cues us to our, our, you know, our community, our group. And that matters to us more than anything because to be ostracized from that means that, again, given the way we're wired, when the wiring first came in place to be ostracized meant you were like literally left to die. It's like so funny when people go, yeah, I don't need people. I'm a lone wolf. And they want to go, no, we're all people who need people. And do you understand that wolves travel in packs? And if you look up the definition, of a lone wolf, like what an actual lone wolf is in the wolf community, 
it's a wolf that has done something so egregious to the pack that it's ostracized and left to die. That's what a lone wolf is. We're all people. people. Mm, wow. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, it's funny because it it makes me think like when I've, you know, read something on the internet or somebody has sent me something that pisses me off, if I take a moment, I I realize like, oh, this pisses me off because there's something actually right about this and I'm angry about it. Yeah, like it triggers something inside of me. And that's why I had the reaction that I did. 
Yeah, I would argue with, and that's, that, that is sometimes true. I do not think that's always true at all. At all. No, I th- I, no not, I, I don't think, I do not think the anger, um, uh, triggers, they m- must be, I mean, sometimes obviously it does. Yeah. Let's say to the other side, it's totally that. But, but that isn't why. It really isn't why, because often it triggers something. Like I can think, you know, in my own life, when I get livid at something, um, I'll give you an ex- a really quick, a really quick example of, of something that makes me angry. And this is a minor one. It's not even, but there's a, there's a, um, a, you know, a, a, a website I follow on, uh, on Instagram. It's called Scary Mommy, which is just a great title, right? Scary Mommy. You just love it. And it's, and there's a lot of great stuff on it about, you know, misogyny and sexism and, you know, what it's like to raise kids and et cetera. But there's always this presupposition that the woman still is the one who's doing the laundry and who's doing that. There was just, just, this just happened to me. And I actually put something up. I think it was yesterday. And it was something like, you know, what I hate the most is unloading the dishwasher. I hate doing it. And, and the other day, you know, I came in and my husband had unloaded the dishwasher. And what made me happy wasn't simply I could check off this task that I hated doing, but that he heard me and he'd stepped in and done it. And I was livid because I thought I hate this because it presupposes that it was her job to do the dishwasher. That what he said, why is that your job? Why isn't that his job? Why is he hearing you and then stepping in to do it? Why does that belong to you? Why? Now, I think that that is completely wrong. I, I don't think there's any truth in what, in, in what, in, in that preset supposition. I just think that's total misogyny and it makes my head explode. And there's, there's not any way that that anger makes me think maybe they had a point. Not a second. Yeah. No, I, I, I see your point. I agree yeah. with what you're saying. I mean, like, yeah, there the are. The reason I'm saying that now is because there is so much misogyny out there the patriarchy yeah. is terrifying and talk about black lives matter and talk about the systemic racism that is baked into everything and it makes my head explode and there is no justification for any of it so i i don't think that it that i think that i think that when a person is in my opinion 100 percent right and i think there is you know the t- talking about you know stepping aside from from misogyny which I believe is the last acceptable bias. Um, even though people are talking about it now, it is so baked into everything and it's less visible because racism is easier to, to see, right? It's, it's, it's right there in, in, in front of you. I mean, there's so many other ways it's baked in, but misogyny is something that, that is pan human. I mean, in other words, I was once working with a writer who was, so was a guy who was writing a really great feminist, uh, YA. And he said, you know, if all of the countries who are at each other's throats and all of the religions who are ever at each other's throats actually wanted to unite, they could unite over misogyny because every single one of them sees women as lesser than. And it's baked into, you know, the beliefs of being American, the beliefs of being any religion that you name. It's got misogyny baked into it by definition. So, so they could all get together and agree on that, which is sort of terrifying. I probably shouldn't have even said it out loud. To, you know, there's major truth to that. But yeah. I think sort of the key thing is, is once you get angry, I mean, obviously anger doesn't help. I mean, even when you're going to go to your significant other and go, you know, okay, we've got to talk. 
it's just like they should go, yeah, okay, but not now. Because when anybody mm. says we got to talk, that's code for, I'm going to tell you you're doing something wrong. And the minute we hear that, what comes up for us is, uh-oh, someone's going to tell me I'm doing something wrong. I'm going to feel attacked. And so right now, I'm like accumulating all the things that I think you do wrong so I can throw them back at you. And now, you know, we're off to the races because, you know, yeah. obviously telling somebody they're doing something wrong. I mean, it, it just, it doesn't go over well for the reason, again, that we sort of started with, which is we're wired to respond as if it's put up your jokes. In fact, we're so wired to respond to a, what we feel a, a, any kind of a verbal attack on our beliefs or what we've done that we're so wired to respond to it as if it were, uh, you know, a physical attack that sort of fun fact when that happens, blood rushes to your thighs. And because you just might have to make your brain think, you might have to make a quick getaway. So just in case your body's gearing up to, you know, get out because, you know, the, the you need to change or here's a fact that disagrees with a fact that you deeply believe comes at us the same way as if someone was coming at us with a, you know, a baseball bat. Mm, wow. Well, so what advice did your parents give you about, you know, careers, uh, making your way in the world and, and, you know, what led you down this trajectory? Because, you know, like almost every single person I interview, this isn't kind of the career that you're going to find uh, in a career advice book or something. A high school guidance counselor right. is going to say, yeah, this is what you're destined to do. I had absolutely positively no advice from parents ever. Not a word of it. I mean, part of it was probably the misogyny of I was a girl, so it didn't matter. I can remember being 10 years old, sitting on my bike, riding down to thrifty drugstore from my house. And it's like one of those bikes with a banana seat, you know, the seat and, the, and thinking, boys have to get jobs and girls don't have to. That should make girls lucky. Why does it make my stomach hurt? I mean, that was the world I grew up in. And I had parents, I grew up in Los Angeles. Um, with parents who were literally non-present, meaning I had no instruction. I had, I was the kid whose parents never asked to look for at my report card or if I got my homework and all my friends were really jealous of me. And again, I could see they were jealous and all I could think of is sort of made my stomach hurt. So I literally had like no advice at all, period, nothing. Um, I just, I had wanted to be a right. I, I, yeah, I didn't, I, I, if I had done what I want, I had things I wanted to do. I wanted to be a photographer. Didn't quite know how to go forward with that. I wanted to be an anthropologist in college even. And I didn't have the courage to think I could be, I don't know, smart enough, had the drive enough to do it. And I, I you know, I mean, I remember taking a, a, a seminar, my last quarter at Berkeley thinking, you know, I just didn't, I, I don't know. I thought everybody was smarter than me. So I sort of decided I wanted to be a writer and I, I went into publishing. Um, and again, I, I think like a lot of people, I fell into this. If I had to say what makes me good at what I do, and I'm really good at what I do. I mean, I, I, and, and I, I'm good at what I do and I don't understand why. I can take, I believe, any story 
any whether you're, you're a journalist, whether you're a writer, whether you're a screenwriter, whether you're writing a memoir, and now you know I'm moving more into a you know a, a consulting um, you know in terms of branding and, and messaging. I can take any story and tell you why it doesn't work and what you need to do to make it work. It's I don't I don't understand why that is, other than having spent decades having to read manuscripts and saying why they don't work. And I, it's to go to your point. I know I'm, I'm rambling here at this moment. No, it's fine. But but sort of to go to the point of how I fell into doing what I do. Part of it is because I never felt respected or listened to, I felt that if I could see something, I needed to be able to prove it six ways from Sunday. And so <laughs> when I saw what I was seeing, like with story, I can come in and I can say, this is what, what works. This is what doesn't. This is why, and I can say it from six, six different angles, because it really mattered to me to feel heard like everybody mm. else. I wanted to feel heard. I wanted to feel like I had something to say that was going to be worth something to people. And, and I wanted to feel like, I mean, I think story is, is, is the only communication tool out there. And I think not understanding the way that it works is what holds most of us back. And I would see writers out there who could have been great, but because they were, and this is the other thing, and also the other thing that I was seeing is, and I, I say this to everyone I work with, everything you're taught about writing is wrong. Everything you're taught about story is wrong. It is just dead wrong. And I have a big mouth. And so my goal was to go out and go, and I'm going to tell you why it's wrong. And I'm going to show you why it's wrong. And I'm going to show you what you need to do otherwise. And that's sort of what's launched me into this, you know, this new book that I wrote and, and sort of this new arena that I'm going into. Because, I mean, you may have had, I always remember that famous line in college, like in literature as in life, story isn't something to circle back around to what you said, or what we were talking about, you know, before about, you know, stories, you know, entertainment, and then there's informational stuff. Um, I can't remember if we were talking about that here kind of before we started, but a lot of people think that stories for entertainment and then information is something that you're going to give in a serious way with facts and data and all that sort of stuff. And it just isn't true. The only way we learn is through story because story takes the facts and it personifies them, boots on the ground and lets us know how is that fact going to affect me in my life in terms of achieving my agenda? Is it going to help me? Is it going to hurt me? And story is entertaining. So we'll pay attention to it. So we can learn how is that going to affect me? And therefore, what do I need to do? And I just felt that that was so important and seeing no one else teach it that way. I just became a, an evangelist for that, along with the fact that in order to understand story and in order to understand the way to convince anyone of anything, and not only that, the way to understand the way we are convinced of things that we don't even realize we're being convinced of, because stories affect us every minute of every day, whether we're aware of it or not. And usually we're not. We also had to understand what drives story, which is what drives life, which is emotion, which means really flipping the script on emotion and what emotion is. Because what we've been told emotion is and what it does 
and what it actually is are two completely different things. Yeah. Wow. It's funny. I don't, I, I guess I don't remember from our last conversation that you were also a Berkeley undergrad and I just had to laugh when you're like, I didn't feel smart. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's kind of the Berkeley experience. Basically you feel like everybody there is much more intelligent. Uh, you know, like the, I think that we share that similar drive. Like I, I, I relate to that on so many levels. Like I just felt like you were describing my college experience. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'll tell you, I'll tell, I mean, the other, not the other reason, but I'll tell you a story that goes to just put this out there a week ago. I've never said this. Um, I never put this out there before and I'll tell you why. Stories are about, especially when you're trying to change someone, you have to be vulnerable and it's terrifying to be vulnerable. And yeah, I'm a Berkeley grad. I, I'm deeply proud of it. I have been proud of that my entire life. I remember going and thinking, oh my gosh, I go to a school that's like in the top 10. It's so yeah. hard to get into. It has, you know, and it also has that, you know, leftist kind of leaning kind of, it just has a, a cachet. But here's the thing. When I was much younger, I, when I was about, I think I was, I think I was going into the, the, the 10th or 11th grade and I was in public school and I dropped out of high school. And so I dropped out of public school and then I went to this very small, um, what used to be called a free school, although you paid tuition. It was like a, like it was a hippie school. Um, there were 32 kids there. Um, you know, we had classes like, um, you know, nonverbal communications and we do stuff like stay up all night and then go down to the flower market and watch them unload flowers in downtown LA. We once like dissected a cat, like a cat cadaver, you know, male or a cat cadaver. I mean, it was, it was, um, it was quite an experience. Um, actually, that's where I met, um, Linda Weinman, who started, uh, lynda.com. We, we both went to that school. Um, anyway, but it fell apart. Like by the time I would have been a senior in high school, it fell apart. And I, I was a high school, I do not have a high school diploma. I have a junior high school diploma. I don't have a high school diploma. And I kind of floundered for a small bit. And I woke up on my 18th birthday and just thought, I have to go to college. What have I done? And it wasn't a, what have I done? Like, uh oh, it was just this thirst. And it just by coincidence or not. And I, you know, um, that 18 happened to be the age that you had to be in order to go to junior college or, you know, community, whatever you want to call it. And I had a friend who was in, you know, a, a, my nearby community college. And I'm like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And I immediately enrolled and went to community college for two years and did really, really well and then transferred to Berkeley. And I graduated from Berkeley. So I spent two, first two years in community college, last two years at Berkeley. I have kept that story close to the vest until now. Like, I've not told that story because I was afraid that if I told that story, I'd seem lesser than. Like, oh, well, you know, look at all that. It never occurred to me that that was actually a positive story. That that was actually more like, oh, wow, all on our own. No, because I didn't, to circle back to that question, like, you know, what did your parents want you to do? Not only didn't they encourage me or, you know, what are you going to do or go to college? I was literally in my late 40s before it occurred to me that that was a pretty cool thing to have done. That, you know, pulling myself up, nobody's telling me, nobody encouraging me, nobody's saying, why don't you do that? But decided to go to community college, working really hard and then graduating, you know, from Berkeley. And then right after that, I moved to New York and went publishing. I mean, 
that's pretty cool. Nobody said, you know, good job. Um, again, yeah. which kind of goes to in life, and I'm saying this to everybody, if someone in your life is doing good, tell them. Don't think they already know. Let them know. Words matter. The biggest lie they ever told us growing up, you know, was like sticks and stones will, you know, break my bones. But words can never hurt me. Words hurt more than sticks and stones and words matter more. Don't think people already know. Even the simplest things, it makes such a difference. Say it out loud. Tell them. Even though it makes you feel vulnerable, which is why we don't. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. 
Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, I think that that makes a perfect segue to getting into the book. And I was thinking about how I wanted to approach, you know, the framework that you offered in the book. And I, I realized that the best way to do it was to actually put it in the context of a real example, because, I mean, you just packed this with so much that I feel like it would be impossible for us to cover all of it in the course of an interview. But, um, you know, let, let's, for example, take something that I think a lot of people want to do, which is build an audience for their work, whether they're artists, whether they're writers, whatever it is, whether they're podcast hosts. And let's look at it through this sort of lens of story that you basically talk about here in the book. And one thing that you talk about at the very beginning uh, is you say that facts, charts, and data make us look smart and they make us feel smart, but they alone, alone they don't get our point across, nor do they make what we're saying memorable which means they're pretty much useless when it comes to helping us accomplish the thing that really does make us smart, the ability to communicate clearly in a way that engages, persuades, and inspires. Uh, and so, you know, I, I was thinking of it as like, okay, well, let's say we're launching something like an online course. Um, when we start with this first idea of, of looking at facts, because, you know, I think that people naturally want evidence for the things that you're saying. Like I am, you know, very clear on the fact that when I interview people, I want a good story, but I also am like, if, if I, you know, smell what I call new age bullshit, I'm like, yeah, no go. This person is not going to be a guest. They can't back up anything they're saying. But, you know, part of the reason I have you here is I know that you've studied this in extensive detail. So, um, let, let's start with this idea of, of sort of facts. Like, what are the role, what is the role of fact in, in all of this? You know, in the case of, for example, let's say you're launching an online course. Like, what role does, do facts play in that aspect? Well, I mean, I mean, to, to talk about facts, I mean, yes, people want the facts, but they want them. I mean, I mean, two things, because especially when you're trying to convince someone of something, first, you have to figure out what do those facts mean to them? Why would it matter to them? Because the biggest problem that we have is we have the reason why the facts matter to us. And it's, 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 I want to say it's easy to, it's, 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 we automatically do assume that the facts are going to matter to them for the same reason they matter to us. And that could not be less true. So the first question is, why would these facts matter to these people? You know, this group that I'm trying to, you know, that I'm trying to sell my course to. And then what is it that stands in the way of them wanting my course? Like, what is that? It's like I use the term misbelief. It's keeping them from thinking, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. And then creating a story that, that, that shows them again, the reality of, of, of what it is that they're, that you're going to give them, how those facts are going to matter to them, given their worldview and given what they feel that they need. I mean, again, I've shared say it, it's hard to do in general because we don't do anything in general. Um, it would be easier to give like an actual example, like something out of the book. But the other thing that I would say on that level is what you want to look at is just in general for facts, any fact is here's a, fact that you're just going to give someone, okay, but boots on the ground, translating that fact into the consequence, the effect that that fact is going to have on this person, given their agenda, is it going to help them or is it going to hurt them? If you can't come up with a story that pulls us into seeing how that happens and how that breaks a misbelief or breaks something or take something away that they're worried about and now gives them something in return, perhaps even, 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 even satisfies or gives them something 
that they already knew that they wanted but didn't know how to get or satisfies a need that you've identified that they themselves might even not have identified for. But that's what we're looking for. How is this going to help me better make it through the night given who I am and what I need and how I see the world? So it really is impossible to come up with something if you haven't really done the research to figure out why what you're offering that group is going to matter to them given who they are and how they see the world and how and what they're struggling with that you're going to now satisfy and, um, you know, and, and give them something again that will help them better make it through the night. Yeah. So you actually talk about, uh, you know, four distinct fact groups, you n- neutral yeah. facts, warning facts, validating facts yeah. and conflicting facts. Can you explain what those are and how they would, for example, play a role in something like launching a product? Absolutely. I mean, so the, so the four kind of facts, I mean, the, the, you know, the first fact um, would be a, uh, you know, a validating fact. And a fa- that's a fact that, that we, all, that, 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 I'm sorry, that is the kind of fact that when you hear about like a uh, confirmation bias, a validating fact is a fact that validates something that we already believe. And I'll give you a very quick example of, um, of a validating fact that was actually then, you know, turned out to be what political called the lie of the year. But if you've got a validating fact and something that you want someone to do, so you're going to play into their beliefs, it could be two words. And the validating fact, again, that was presented as a fact was not, is I think it was, was it in 2008 when Sarah Palin was really railing against the Affordable Health Care Act? And she said that if it was passed, they were going to have death panels. Okay. And that's a story in two words death panels. That was a validating fact that her audience could unpack. They heard that that fact, and because it validated what they already believed, they could unpack it. And the story that they told themselves, the way that fit into their narrative was, yeah, a valid government's going to tell me what to do. And so, you know, they were picturing like, you know, a tribunal of gray-faced bureaucrats, you know, and you're going to come in and go, you know, please can't I get, you know, chemotherapy for grandma. And they were going to go, well, grandma's no longer a productive, you know, member of our society. So we're going to send her out, you know, on an ice floor or worse, you know, your critically ill toddler. In other words, they could unpack it. And of course, it, it, it further uh, strengthened their belief that, you know, the Affordable Health Care Act was going to be something horrible. So that would be, um, a validating fact. The other kind of fact is, a, <clears throat> excuse me, is a warning fact. And those are things like lion run, you know, or, you know, I wouldn't eat that cake if I were you. Dad mistook salt for sugar again. And those are facts, again, that we can instantly unpack. And that's what we're wired for. When people go, oh, you know, what's wrong with us? We, we react to sound bites and we don't, you know, why, why can't we think more deeply? It's because we're wired to respond to sound bites. We're wired to respond to something very quickly, you know, like Lion Run, like there's a car coming, look out. And that would be a warning fact. And those warning facts instantly get our attention because something is happening in the moment. And if we don't act, you know, we might end up being toast. The other kind of fact, the fourth kind of fact, and this is the the type of fact that we make the most mistakes on. And they're facts that we have no, no, they're neutral facts. And they're facts that we have no way to unpack. And the problem is that 
when you give a fact, like a statistic, for instance, you know, when you give a statistic and you're aware of what that statistic means, boots on the ground. In other words, you can translate it into, you know, if it's something about climate change, I was one, I remember hearing, and I, 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 statistics are so hard, it's hard even to remember them. But it was something like, you know, if we keep doing carbon emissions, but it wasn't even said carbon emissions, it was something even less, you know, um, uh, obvious, because like we kind of know what a carbon emission is, you know, increases by 2.3%, then by 20, you know, 20, 20, 20, you know, 20, 2100 or, you know, 2100 when we turn the next, uh, you know, into the next uh, century, uh, the temperature will have risen 2.3% Fahrenheit here. And you're listening to that going, is that good? Is that bad? What's the consequence going to be? And it goes right by us. Now, the person giving that statistic is going, oh my gosh, if that happens, the ice flows will melt and, you know, and Manhattan's going to be underwater. And in other words, they can unpack that statistic. We can't. And so it becomes neutral or it goes right by. In other words, a fact that we can't instantly unpack and feel something about, if we can't see how it's going to affect us personally in our own lives, not only don't we pay attention to it, we really can't because the part of our brain that is there, the conscious part, is there to pay attention to things that we have to take action on things that we don't automatically know what to do. So if we do not have a context ourselves to unpack that information, it just flies right by. Like, you know, back when you were in high school and they, you know, they were trying to make you memorize the periodic tables. They told you it was going to be so important later in life. And you're thinking, yeah, I'm not going to go on Jeopardy. Why do I need to know this? Even when you try to pay attention to that kind of fact, it tends to, you're trying and you're thinking. In fact, going back to Berkeley, I had a a philosophy class once where I was trying so hard to pay attention. And every time I went into the class, I thought, today I'm really going to pay attention. And when I left, I thought, yeah, okay, next time. <laughs> Ever. I was lost instantly because it was so deeply conceptual because nothing ever is conceptual. And, and the last, um, the last kind of facts. So there's, let me see if I've got that right. The, the last kind of facts are conflicting facts. And, Conflicting facts are the kind of facts that we often use when we're trying to convince someone of something. And that is a fact where we're thinking, oh, look at that person. They're so wrong about that. I'm going to give them the true fact and then they'll sit and they'll think about it and they'll, and now they're going to realize they're wrong. And what happens when we get a conflicting fact, especially if it conflicts with something we deeply believe, whether it's right or wrong, what happens is because anything we believe becomes part of not only our self-identity, but our, our link to our, our, you know, our, 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 our group, our, our community, that comes in, as we said earlier, as if we're being physically attacked. And that's why that irony is, is when you tell someone something, let me just, you know, let me just tell you, or, you know, like when you see people, I think we kind of, know this instinctually on one level. But, you know, when you see people and they've got those signs, you know, they're very angry and they, and they, they have those signs that say, um, keep your government hands off my Medicare. And you kind of want to go up and go, okay, let me, let me explain this to you. <laughs> Medicare is a government program. So if the government takes its hands off it, you would have them. And I mean, you know, if you gave them that fact, you just enrage them because the truth is, that's not what they're angry about. 
circling back to what we were we were talking about earlier, that's not what they're angry about. They're not angry about that what. The why they're angry about it is because they really feel government is too big. Government gives money to people who don't deserve it. Government takes my hard-earned money and gives it to people who just have not been able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And that is so deeply unfair. And the government's going to tell me what to do. And nobody tells me what to do. And, you know, and when you want to, you know, point out, you know, like, you know, when we're talking about, you know, masking, the government's not going to tell me what to do. They can't. How dare they? And I always want to go, well, you have a driver's license, don't you? So, you know, when you see a stop sign, you stop at the stop sign, don't you? When you go outside, you wear pants, don't you? The government's telling you to do all those things. But again, it's still that, you know, coming back to the nobody tells me what to do. What they really mean with that is nobody tells me to do something that my tribe tells me is the wrong thing to do, not just nobody tells me what to do. Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, I think that that makes a perfect segue into talking about this whole idea of the role of emotion. And you say that emotion is what determines every decision we make, and that's a good thing. Emotion evolved to let us know in a nanosecond what's safe and what isn't and what matters to us. And in so doing, emotion is what ensured our survival. You say conflating emotion with society's notion of emotional is bad enough, but it doesn't stop there. Our fear of emotion is reflected in the way we classify emotions. I'm talking about big box emotions, that is, emotions we've grounded up categorized and named anger, love, jealousy, hate, rage, joy, happiness, grief, to mention a few. In doing so, we've swept our most potent, nuanced emotions into neat, homogenized, off-sanitized definitions that we use to sum them up, the better to keep a safe, objective distance from them. And, you know, I think that struck me because I'm hyper aware of the role that emotion plays in story, you know, mm-hmm. to the point where even when we do sort of non-interview based episodes, when we put these narrative episodes together, you know, we did one, you know, uh, about the 36 questions to, you know, fall in love with anyone. And my, you know, instructions to my, my audio engineer were really vague. It was like, this is all I'm looking for is the emotion. I said, here's your goal. Bring people to tears. That's it. I don't know what else to tell you. And it's amazing. He's so good that he can take that and make something of that. Wow. Um, but yeah, and at the same time, you know, you mentioned vulnerability earlier, and this is something that I'd, I'd be curious about. So I've had numerous conversations about public vulnerability with people. Uh, and what I wonder is, you know, to me, there's this sort of line between being vulnerable and being a train wreck. And, you know, I learned this, you know, the hard way uh, by crossing that line. And, and, you know, having had to be on reality TV recently, uh, you know, people are like, oh, you, you carried yourself so well, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, I'm incredibly aware of the role that media plays in shaping public perception of who I am. And, you know, given that I had a lot at stake, I had to also be mindful about the things I said and did. And at the same time, to your point, you can't connect with another person or relate to them without them being vulnerable. So how do you basically figure out, you know, where that line is uh, in terms of what's appropriate for public consumption and not when it comes to emotion and vulnerability? Well, I mean, just two things. Can I talk about emotion just for one second? Yeah, please. Or, because emotion, you know, as you were, as you were reading there, it was so much, so much better on paper than I could actually, you know, spew it um, for the moment off the cuff. But emotion is so deeply misunderstood because we've conflated emotion with emotional. Emotional being, you know, a very narrow band or pitch of emotion that is always 
meant as pejorative as if emotion and reason are two separate things and you don't want to be carried away by emotion. And emotion is the bedrock of everything. Emotion telegraphs meaning. There is never a moment in our lives, there's nothing we ever do, think about, or read that doesn't bring with it a chorus of emotion, which is literally a chemical reaction of feeling that your brilliant brain and nervous system translates to emotion that lets you know what you feel about something and therefore what you should do about it. It doesn't mean that you do the first thing you feel about because you think also, but we've been taught that it's this either or, you know, a reason and thinking about it is that's what we should do and emotion's going to carry us away and we need to keep emotion at bay. And that is not true. They are flip sides of the same coin. It's not either or. It is always both and because emotion telegraphs meaning and emotion is always the decider. We don't make decisions based on our rational analysis of something. We make decisions based on how that rational analysis makes us feel. So when it comes to being vulnerable in public, I mean, obviously, yeah, one doesn't want to be a train wreck. And I would say, it's funny to say, I've never been asked that question this way. So because we're very specific, which is, which is great. And just taking the sort of train wreck analogy, the trouble with a train wreck is you're left with a train wreck. I mean, you feel like you're watching somebody break down and you don't know where it's going to go. And you feel like, okay, there's not going to be an aha moment. There's not going to be a moment where this person is, is going to say, and not that they're going to say it in this way, but this is what I learned from this or this is this is what it cost me to come up with X, Y, or Z, you know, realization. If we're not vulnerable, meaning we don't know something, we, I, we can't tell a story. I mean, you can't tell a story about yourself or your brand or your product if there isn't some vulnerability in there because stories are about change. Stories are about how we go in thinking one thing's going to happen and something else happens instead. We go in believing one thing and something happens and that challenges that belief, or as I call it, misbelief, and we come out believing something different. So if you can't be vulnerable, then you have nothing to learn and then it doesn't cost you anything. Because think of story as the story is an emotional cost-benefit analysis of taking a particular course of action. And the thing is, because inside we are all vulnerable, I once had a student at, at UCLA in the writer's program, and she said, you know, I know on the surface I look really put together, but inside I'm a raging mess and I'm trying to keep all of you from seeing it. That's all of us. Every single one of us is that. Every single one of us has vulnerability raging on the inside. And when somebody tries to tell us a story and they're not vulnerable, we have a really pretty good BS detector. We don't believe it. And then we don't like that person because we can't relate to that person. Because people, even in fiction, they'll go, I've got to make my characters likable. I have to be likable. And they mistake likable to picture perfect and in polite society, they'd never do anything untoward. That is not <laughs> likable. That is what makes us unlikable. What makes us likable is to be relatable. And, and people will stop at that to be relatable. And you'll, okay, but what makes a person relatable? What makes a person relatable is being vulnerable. And so the, the difference, and you're absolutely right, when you're going out and you're, you could tell a story where within the story, you could have been a train wreck. 
But looking at you now, you know, when people can see you, the same thing is true in a memoir. There were comments writing about the, all the horrible things and they might have died. And you're thinking, but they wrote the memoir. So I know they, you know, they survived at least to do that. Um, and seeing you and seeing how put together a person looks that they're you know, comfortable in their own skin, we trust that we are going to come out the other end. And, and that I think that really is the point is coming out the other end and having the courage to be vulnerable. And I think that that's something that the business world gets wrong because they're afraid to be vulnerable. I'll, if you don't mind my, I, I was reading, a, I was on Twitter the other day and this was a tweet that I think, um, um, is it, um, oh God, what's her name? Martha, you know, one who went to jail when I'm like, just liking on her last name. Uh, Martha Stewart. Thank you, Martha Stewart. Mm-hmm. And her daughter, I think Melissa Stewart tweets and she tweeted something like, it was some business consultant are going, here's a great story that he, that he told. And I read it and it made me so angry, right? Because he didn't have a point. It wasn't, they were right. And the story was simply like, this is how he, a brilliant way to motivate your sales force. And, and the story was, um, five years ago, my wife and I bought a house and we thought it wasn't going to need much work. But once we got in, we realized that it really needed a pretty much, a much bigger renovation than we thought. So we spent the money and now it's a much better house than it was. And that was the story, right? So, (laughs) and it's like, what? There's no vulnerability there. There's no moment when you, I mean, imagine that moment where you move into a house and you think you've got it together and you think you've done all the work and suddenly, you know, the the floor falls out in the, you know, in the kitchen or something. That's what we we come for. We don't come for the, oh my God, how are we going to get the money and can we do it? And what do we... That's what we come for. He did not let himself be vulnerable at all. It was just a, this happened and then that happened. And then we did this other thing. And so now, you know, and the point of the, of the story he was making was, and now we've come into, you know, this new business thing that we're doing and we need to ask what we're doing wrong so we can rebuild and blah, blah, blah. There was no emotion. There was no vulnerability. It was not a story. And again, it did make me mad. How can you put that out there? That absolutely is not a story. That's somebody bragging. That's a humble brag, right? I mean, that's (laughs) about humble brag. We bought this house and we had to put much more money in it. But of course we did because we're rich and, you know, it was no biggie. We stayed in our other house, (laughs) which is what that implies. Again, nothing but a humble brag, you know? And if people are like, yeah, boss, great story. It's because they're afraid of you, not because they're going, (laughs) you know, we're the same. You can't yeah. be vulnerable. Like I said, not only are you not inviting people in and, and showing that you're the same, but they're looking at you and smiling. And what's going on in their head is, oh my God, there goes that blowhard again. <laughs> wow. Well, you know, I, I think that that actually is a, a perfect jump off point for talking about what it takes to create a story of, you know, capable of changing someone's mind. And you say there are four stages. Uh, your protagonist's worldview must go through culminating in taking up your call to action, which are misbelief, truth, realization, and transformation. Uh, talk to me about those. Like, let's say, for example, I am sending, you know, an email newsletter, uh, just off the top of my head about mm-hmm. some, you know, so we're, we're launching a new course called Attention Mastery because the number one issue that, you know, like 80 something percent of our readers who answered our survey seem to have is their inability to focus. So if mm-hmm. we were to take that example, and walk it through this, you know, framework of, you know, misbelief, truth, realization, and transformation, what would that look like? Well, I mean, the 
first would be, I mean, just to say in those, you know, uh, misbelief realization, uh, I'm saying misbelief truth realization transformation is that they need to discover these things on their own through your story. You're never going to sit down and go, this is this thing you believe that isn't true. Here's what's actually true. Now, given that, I know that your job is now to realize this and then your job is to go do this. This is something (laughs) they need to see for themselves. So the misbelief would be to go in and go, okay, given that, why wouldn't they take your class? Because that's really the question that you're answering. What would keep them, given that they've answered that question, that their biggest problem is, you know, being able to, to focus, you know, which is like put your phone down, step away from the phone. But, you know, besides that, what is the reason that they're telling themselves that they can't take a class like that? Is it that it costs too much? Is it that it would take too much time? Is it that they couldn't focus on it? And <laughs> Like what, from their point of view, what would that be? And then you would find, okay, what truth counters that? And then through the story, you would, you would let them come to that belief and you'd know what that truth was. And then when they see that, when they realize, wait a minute, because you know that what they want, right? You know that they want to be able to focus. So that, and again, I, I can't take it all the way through in the story because I don't know what that reason would be that they wouldn't. Sure. But yeah. once we have that, then it would be, okay, what's the truth? So they can be in a situation where they experience that and they're smacking up against that misbelief. And now they see the truth, which makes them realize, wait, that reason I thought they couldn't do it was wrong. I thought that that misbelief, because again, a misbelief is something that, you know, it, it, it's not actually true, but the person believes it's 100% true. They feel like they're lucky they knew it. This is something that's, again, keeping them from being vulnerable. This is a, probably something, you know, often that they learned early in life. And this is now, you know, example of when it's coming to a head. And then the realization is, oh my gosh, not only wasn't that helping me, it was holding me back. And once they have that realization, the transformation is, okay, now I can do what I want, meaning the thing that you want them to do, right? Because this is what you're gearing them toward. And then the transformation is taking up your call to action, which would not only probably be take my course, but tell all your friends about it too. Because when we have that kind of aha moment realization, we tend to want to share it. And then, you know, we become, you know, the the, the biggest kind of, 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 you know, of going viral, which is, you know, person to person. Um, you know, few evangelists for your brand make all the difference. Um, it goes to, it's the example that I give in the book of that is that if I could just say super quickly, not, not even to run through it, but a lot of people might be familiar with it. If not, look it up. And it is, a uh, uh, I think it's from 2015 and it was the like a girl always, uh, video, um, which was, Always yes, the you know, the company that makes, you know, what used to euphemistically be called sanitary pads. And they did this like a girl campaign. They were it was the first time such a product had had an ad run during the Super Bowl. And you can totally understand why. Since it's a product that not only would men never use, but you know, the ick factor would be why they wouldn't. And it was the top rated, you know, in Adobe where they do the, you know, the 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 after the fact looking at how well it did. It was the top rated ad. It got something like their goal. Their agenda there wasn't to sell, you know, sanitary pads. It was to get people to, on social media, share things with the always logo. And I think, I think it was something like during Super Bowl, during when it was there, it had something like this outrageous number, like 400,000 shares. 
it really made a difference. But the way that they did it was they had realized that the notion of like a girl was, was, was obviously, obviously pejorative. She throws like a girl. She runs like a girl. And that girls self, uh, you know, uh, self-confidence plummets when they hit puberty right around the time when those sort of gender-based insults start to come fast, you know, fast and furious. So their goal was to change the way girls and women related to and the meaning of like a girl. That was their goal. So the first thing they had to do, misbelief was like a, like a girl is true. Girls, you know, they do, they, they're silly. They, they can't really run. They can't really throw. They can't really, you know, I mean, they just, they're, they're just there to kind of look pretty and make sure their hair is okay. So that was the misbelief they had to, they had to challenge. The truth was <laughs> throwing like a girl, running like a girl just means doing it the best that you can. And that can, can be as good, if not better than what boys do. It's, it's really acting like a human to realize, you know, to have that, that's the truth. And then the realization, which was, I've been sold a bill of goods. You know, I've been told, you know, you do it like a girl to keep me down. And now I'm going to reclaim that because like a girl means do it the best that you can as a human. And that was the transformation. You know, and, and you watch these girls go through. It's a brilliant, if you want to see how this works, it is a brilliant, um, you know, ad to, uh, uh, you know, video to watch. It was done by a, you know, a very, um, you know, award winning documentary filmmaker, Lauren Greenfield, who did several documentaries. One that I saw was The Queen of Versailles, which was fabulous. But, um, but you really see how that plays out. But the, the key thing there is that the girls and boys that they had in this ad, which was, which was shot as an open casting call. Um, you know, it wasn't, it was, I, I will, I would have to explain the whole thing and I, I will stop at that right now because you're going open casting call. What does that even mean? Just watch it and you'll see. And the point, if you watch it is that she lets them discover these things on their own. She never lectures them. She never gives them facts. She never explains things to them. She does all of this. She never shames them because that's obviously the problem. Often when you give someone a fact that contradicts what they believe, it feels like you're saying there's something wrong with them and therefore you're shaming them and therefore they're going to say, oh yeah, here's what you do. It's a brilliant yeah. example of it. Wow. Well, let's talk specifically about, you know, audiences and, and calls to action because, you know, this is something I wonder just from your own perspective in publishing. You know, I have a, a lot of people in our, you know, our membership community and, and one of the things we're working on is, you know, how do you build an audience? And sometimes it's almost impossible for me to deconstruct it because I've done it for so long mm-hmm. that trying to reverse engineer it is, you know, one, context matters because, you know, like everything right. was different when I started this. So I'm like, okay, you need to consider the possibility that everything I've told you is bullshit because it might be mm-hmm. in the context of your own life. But yeah, maybe the example I think of when I think about this is you take a book like Mark Manson's Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, right? Mm-hmm. Like, why is it that books like that have the impact on culture that they do? Uh, yeah, and what what role does story tell in that and then play in that? And then, you know, why is it that you have the, the blogger who spends years lingering in obscurity, uh, unable to have any sort of impact on audience, unable to grow that audience? Mm-hmm. Like, what is the difference between those two things? Because you know, I think we all like the idea that, hey, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write the next, you know, Mark Manson level bestseller. But how many people actually accomplish that? I mean, you've, you're in publishing, you know, better than anybody that, you know, the odds of that happening are not very high for most of us. Yeah, I mean, I would say just, I mean, taking the surface of that, 
it's because he had the guts to say something that other people didn't have the guts to say. I mean, you know, I mean, it's they've got the little asterisks there with with fuck, but he said something that we're always thinking, but wouldn't say out loud. It's it's surprising. I mean, it grabs us because it breaks a pattern. I mean, we're always looking for something that breaks a pattern, and that does because whoever puts, you know, even intimates the word fuck. It's like that same book that did so well, Go the Fuck to Sleep. It's like yeah. kids' book. It's just hilarious because it takes something we're really familiar with. In the case of, you know, go the fuck to sleep. It takes something we're very familiar with, you know, wanting our kids to go to sleep. We're familiar with the way that kids' books are. And then that juxtaposition, it's the word fuck, which happens to be, I totally admit, one of my most favorite words in the, on the planet. And I also have to say that when people say, I don't, I don't swear, I think therefore I don't trust you because I think swearing <laughs> language. Because when someone says, I don't swear, it means there are certain areas of reality I'm not willing to go into. There's certain layers that I'm going to deny or there I'm going to sanitize. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, I love swearing. I swear all the time in my life. I think it's important. But but think that I honestly think that that's why, because that was attention grabbing, because we're always looking for something that surprises us. I mean, I'll tell you, like this morning, I, I subscribed to... um Mark Bittman, you know, the, the cookbook writer, uh, he has a, um, a newsletter. I haven't subscribed to the whole thing, but I subscribed to his newsletter that's called the Bittman Project. And the, so I get newsletters from, you know, from, from, from his, from, you know, what he's doing there, his, his brand. And, and this morning, the, the headline on it was, um, instant pots are terrifying. And I, I immediately opened it because like terrifying, what do you mean? And, you know, full disclosure, I am, I, don't have an, an Instapot. I don't want an Instapot. I've watched people have those odes to how great an Instapot is, and it makes me roll my eyes. So when I see something that breaks that head or like they're terrified, yeah, tell me about it. And I instantly, yeah. because we're looking for that element of surprise. We're looking for that element of breaking a pattern. We're looking for this compared to that. I mean, that's the problem. If someone says, I'm going to explain to you how to do something, we're yawning and we're gone. If we're saying, you've been doing this forever and this is why it doesn't work. And oh my God, here's the hack that now you can do this thing you've always wanted to do. Now it's this compared to that. Now it's this myth I'm going to bust, this pattern I'm going to, I'm going to break. And now I'm right there listening to you. That's why wow. that succeeded. And, and stuff that's just like, let me explain this to you. It's also people make the mistake, I think in publishing or in anything, storytelling is that their audience is already with them. Their audience is there and that once they see what they've got, it's almost like it's the audience's responsibility to read it and to go forward with it and to pay attention to it. Whereas it never is. Everybody's there at their pleasure and at their leisure. And the question always is, why is this going to matter to them given who they are and what their agenda is? How will this help them or hurt them? And how can I say things that other people might not go to the depths and not feel like you're trying to please everybody, not feel like you're trying to sanitize everything. In fact, it's one of the things when I was just on Mark Bittman's site recently for this, uh, you know, Bittman project. And he said, a lot of people say, don't be, don't, don't be political here. And he said, I, I, I'm sorry. I have to be political because food and eating is political and you can't pull that part away. And it made me love him. I mean, because I'm political. I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm never going to be someone that's like, well, I've got to pull everything down so it can appeal to everybody. Try to appeal to everybody and you're appealing to nobody. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I very distinctly remember Justine Musk, you know, once said to me, and I've quoted this a thousand times, she said, if you have a bold and compelling point of view, it's going to piss people off. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, that has always stayed with me. And, you know, when I piss people off in my audience, my response is great. There's the unsubscribe button. Uh, yeah. Don't let the door hit your ass on the way out. Exactly. Uh, I mean, there's all that. If, if, you know, if everybody likes what you're doing, you're doing it wrong. I yeah. Mean, yeah, that's, it's, it's very- there, there is something funny that, that, you know, we were talking about the, the, you know, using the word fuck in a book title. I yeah. feel like the problem with, you know, what happened was people took that and now I'm like publishers, I feel like have lost their minds because I feel like you go into the self-help section of a bookstore and it's like, okay, how many of these idiots just put the word fuck in the title? Cause they think that that's going to be the key to their bestseller success. I, and that, yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, obviously there, there's a line. I mean, obviously it's not just putting fuck in the title. that's going to do it. Yeah. You have to have something, as you were saying before, you have to have something to back it up. If you don't yeah. have something to back it up, you're, you know, it, 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 it the publisher's not going to take it. So, I mean, I think that's what got obviously people's attention out there, but for sure the publisher was sure before that moment that what was going to be inside was going to be worth the shot. In other words, yeah. they were going to say, so he was going to say something that backed that up. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, I feel like this is an incredibly deep rabbit hole that we could spend hours and hours talking about um, just because of, of, you know, how much you packed into this book. Um, so uh, I want to wrap things up with my final question, which is okay. how we finish every interview at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? That is a good question. I, I think it is having whatever that revelatory detail is that flips something familiar. In other words, if somebody is just going to the almost a train wreck thing you said, if somebody, if something is so completely different that we do not have a context for it, even though it's something we've never seen before, we're going to pay no attention to it because we've got no framework to make sense of it and to fit it into our lives. I think that what makes people unforgettable is they can see what everybody else is seeing and they see the one thing they're not. And that one thing flips the script on so much of what they are seeing. In other words, it takes the familiar and it makes it press by flipping it into something else. And that is, that's the only way. Without that, you don't have anything. And that's always something surprising. Because we are wired for something called an avidity for patternicity, meaning we're constantly looking for patterns. And once we see an if this, therefore that pattern, we don't think about it anymore. And it gets relegated to our cognitive unconscious. And when something breaks that pattern, it instantly gets our attention. And that, and, and then if you can, again, as you were saying, like with the either go the fuck to sleep or the other book, and then if you can back it up with a wow, and here's the truth behind that, and here's how you can use it. That's what makes people unforgettable. But first, you got to get someone's attention. And paying attention is an apt metaphor. We don't we we don't pay attention to facts. We pay attention to story because story's first goal is to grab us instantly with something unexpected. And mm. once we've got that, and once that unexpected is then tied into what we did expect, and it changes what we expected, that's what makes an idea or a person unforgettable. But you have to have the context to give it meaning to begin. Well, I think that makes a, a fitting end to a, a riveting conversation. Uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights and wisdom with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, the new book, and everything else that you're up to? 
am, I'm easy to find. And at my website, which I admit needs a makeover, um, it's just my website is wiredforstory.com. That is me. And amazing. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.